0: Of the 270 pregnant women, 238 were not followed up. And of the data that they did present with a miscarriage, it was 80% miscarriage rate. The federal government, the CDC and the FDA, they sat on that data.
1: Dr. James Thorpe is an OBGYN and fetal medicine specialist who sees upwards of 8,000 patients a year. He says his extensive reading of available data convinced him that pressuring pregnant women to get the COVID-19 genetic vaccines is unconscionable.
0: They fraudulently deleted horrible outcomes of the vaccine in the reproductive toxicology studies. The official UK government specifically recommend that the vaccines not be used in pregnancy and not to be used in breastfeeding.
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. James Thorpe, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders.
0: Jan, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for all you do on this amazing platform.
1: You are an OBGYN doctor. You're a maternal fetal medicine specialist. I want to make sure I get that right. You just recently published a paper, COVID-19 Vaccines, this is in preprint, The Impact on Pregnancy Outcomes and Menstrual Function. You're also, I think you told me, on track to see 9,000 patients this year, right? which I find almost unfathomable. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about your background?
0: Sure. So I'm 69 years old, uh, and i am um, been doing high-risk obstetrics, which is my passion. Um, I've been doing it for over 43 years. went to medical school at Wayne State University School of Medicine and did an OBGYN residency for four years at University of Colorado in Denver, served with the Air Force active duty for three years, then went back to University of Texas Houston to do a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine. And so Spent the first half of my career in Kansas City, second half of my career down in Florida, where I currently reside with my beautiful bride Maggie. And I work; I do full-time telemedicine, and I work through a company um, in the Midwest, and it's primarily with about eight offices, and uh, both suburban and urban and rural areas, about eight different locations, Missouri and Illinois, and uh, I love what I do. And so, well, you don't
1: typically connect obstetrics with telemedicine, or at least I don't. I mean, how does that work exactly?
0: You mean like delivering a baby through a computer screen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> but, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> right. That's a brilliant question, Jan. And. Technology has developed, no, I'm just kidding. I've gone to fellowship training and done maternal fetal medicine. So what we do is, um, many of us now oversee the OBGYN docs or the uh, nurse midwives, and then we focus on the very high risk obstetrical patients. You know, the important things, of course, catching a baby is very important, but really it's pretty Pretty routine. So, we use our expertise for the more important things in obstetrics, like, for example, you know how to keep a baby in the womb safely until it's safe to deliver them, how to prevent premature labor, when do you induce somebody, at what time do you induce somebody, how do you manage diabetes, hypertension, preeclampsia, and all the other obstetrical complications that we have in the United States of America right now. Uh, many of us don't actually catch the babies, but we um, telemedicine renders our specialty um, uh, very well because we do high-definition um, ultrasound, 2D and 3D ultrasound. And so uh, a lot of the way we examine our patients is through the ultrasound. So we have the ability to to do that. And then, of course, I can examine the patient or talk to a patient if there's a need to do that. And my hands and eyes and brains on the ground can do the physical examination in front of me. And there's a lot that I can see on the telemedicine computer screen as well. Um, it's it's, it's a very, very effective for me. I'm actually seeing about three times as many patients as I did before I retired, and that's because I'm able to devote all of my time to all of my patients and not drive all the way around the geography of two or three states. My mother was a labor and delivery nurse, but I went to uh, a Catholic high school in Lakewood, Ohio, uh, and. During that time, we had books that we had to read for summer vacation, one of the books that I read was uh, on Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, and it was by Morton Thompson, The Cry and the Covenant. And it had a really huge impact on me as a high schooler, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do after I read that book, and there's several parts of that story that are really intriguing historically to me. Um, number one, in, in the mid-19th century, in the 18, mid-1850s or so, Ignaz Philipp Sammelweis was an attending obstetrician at Vienna in Hospital. And unfortunately at that time, obviously that was a pre-antibiotic era. But Jan, if you can fathom this, almost one in two beautiful, young, healthy, pregnant women that went into Vienna in Hospital to have a baby died. Mom died, went out of the hospital, the morgue, never to see her baby again that she delivered. And it so happened that Vienna in Hospital, all the attending physicians and all the physicians in training were going down to the morgue to do the vivisections, their um, autopsies. And there was nothing known of bacteria or viruses or infection or health, you know, the safety of washing hands. That wasn't known. But Ignaz Philip Semmelweis figured it out. They had all of these contorted theories of how the women were dying, and, and it's so analogous to what's going on today in so many different levels, Jan. So the what I would like to call, and I refer to, the American board of OBGYN authorities of his day did the exact same thing. At the American OBGYN, the Board of OBGYN, and American College of OBGYN, and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine are doing today. There's nothing new under the sun, as it says in the Good Book of Ecclesiastes. What has been done will be done again.
1: And so I guess we have to sort of mention a little bit about the story, right? So, some always you know, had this brilliant idea that people should wash their hands and then what happened?
0: It turned out that he did an internal study and what he did was uh, one floor would wash their hands and another floor would did not. So he performed really the first randomized prospective trial in medicine. He performed it and he figured it out that what he called contagion. They had all these other goofy theories of miasma and things floating around in the air and. Um it, it made no sense. Why did it not make any sense? Because he was an observant physician. I love that about him. And number two, and I've tried to model myself after him, I do not follow the crowds. Never have, never will. I don't do well when authority is calling illegal and unethical, immoral orders. And when I'm put in a position where I'm expected to dishonor and disrespect my physician-patient relationship.
1: So how is, was the situation then? What happened to Semmelweis and now I guess to what's happening now exactly? They isolated him.
0: Sound familiar? They mocked him. They scourged him. They punished him. They gaslit him. Exactly what they're doing to us right now. Ignaz Philip Samois knew that he was right. He knew that he was right. He performed the study, he showed incredible results, prevented the disease, and they ignored him. And they persecuted him. And he literally was driven crazy. And I can relate to that, Jan, because I have so much ethical and moral trauma from what I've seen in the last two years. Some nights I can't sleep, I cry. It's very painful for me to see my beautiful young moms and my beautiful pre-born babies and my beautiful newborn babies die or be permanently damaged from something. When I know what caused it, I've seen it with my own eyes, Jan. And I think that Ignaz Philip Semmelweis Felt the same way, and I had no idea when I was reading this in 1973 that I would be in such an analogous position
1: in a time such as this. So, what is it that you started to see as these vaccines started to get rolled out, and as we knew uh, they were recommended basically for pregnant women?
0: Well, of course, the vaccines really didn't roll out full force till mm-hmm. 2021. But I became very concerned, actually, in 2019, 2018, when uh, there was all this talk about a looming pandemic that was definitely coming. There was talk about SARS-CoV-1, and so I'm always inquisitive. I like to, you know, make sure I'm catching all bases and not going to miss anything. So I, I went back and read a lot about SARS-CoV-1. I I, I read. Uh, on hydroxychloroquine and how successful it was. Actually, Dr. Tony Fauci's article that he actually published, um, I don't think his name's on it, but he funded it. I think that was published in 2004. And at that time, it was highly effective, highly effective against SARS-CoV-1. And there were a lot of other therapies that were. Um, I was, I'm very into, um, I use ozone a lot not in my obstetrical practice, uh, although I have, but in um, in myself personally and some family and friends, ozone was extraordinarily effective, as was vitamin D3 and many others. So 2020, oh, the pandemic is coming. They even had this mock meeting, if you will, of authorities. They were actors planning out how they would manage a pandemic that was going to come, we were told. So it came, and then I noticed that the doctors, the who weren't really doctors, they're fake doctors, um, and the authorities and the powers that be are saying, well, oh, you can't treat this early. I, what, what do you mean you can't treat it early? Uh, uh, there's no treatment, you just stay at home until you your lips turn blue and then come in in the emergency room. And I was dumbfounded by that response because I'm a, Historian, I I know a history of medicine. There's never been a disease in the history of medicine that we've said no. Just there's no treatment. It's always a always been agreed by experts and historians that the earlier you treat a disease, the better the outcomes going to be. What's this business about staying home? How can you, how do you know there's no therapy for it that's effective? That's not my understanding, so with my research background and with my medical background, and never taken funding from for any of my hundreds of projects that I publish, I haven't taken any funding from any of the pharmaceutical companies. I, I never wanted to take the money because we all know that 90% of grantors that give money for research, 90% of the investigators will always follow the fiduciary leanings of their funder, and that's a fact of life. And I didn't want to be tied to that. So um, I designed a randomized, double-blinded clinical trial in the summer of 2020 saying, this is how it has to be done. I wrote it up, I published it on social media, and, and I sent it um, to everybody I knew.
1: So basically, you're saying, you you said, if you're going to roll out this warp speed vaccine, this is what you need to do mm-hmm. in order to test it properly, to yes, be able to assess it? Yes. And But no one seemed to be interested in your methodology.
0: I got laughed at. Okay. I got laughed at. Of course, it's going to work, and the rest is history. It was rolled out. Now, six months into the rollout, and this is really important, when I looked at the VARS data, Jan, I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong. I hypothesized a five-fold increase in death in 10 years. Are you kidding me? There was a 20 or 25-fold increase of death in six months out of VARS compared to the other vaccines. And I was then really upset uh, and, and rather depressed because had we done that randomized controlled prospective trial and started it, by the by the summer, or by September 2021, we could have had my committee, a committee, a committee around the world to look at that data and say, this vaccine is killing people, take it off the market. That's what would have happened if they did the randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial. They didn't do it. And I think they purposefully didn't do it. So that's my story leading up to the rollout of the vaccine, which was December 1st, 2020. And that's when they shipped it out worldwide. And by mid-December 2020, then the injections were starting around the
1: world. Okay. So then you started seeing some impacts among your patients. Is that what happened?
0: Yes. Um, I saw um, horrible outcomes. Um, And I will say this. I personally didn't see death and destruction from COVID-19 disease itself. Really nothing more than what I've seen over the last 20 years with flu. Um, I really didn't. Um, I didn't see a lot of pregnant women dying. Um, I didn't see a lot of sick pregnant women. There were some, but it was on par with my prior experience with the influenza. Um, and and what I also noticed was that part of the lure to push this vaccine in pregnancy was based upon some really flawed assumptions, in my opinion. Um, for example? Well, for example, I, I think that the powers at be would always say that well, pregnant women, you have to use a vaccine in them. They're at more risk for dying from viral pneumonia. Well, why is that? I would ask, well because pregnant women's immune systems are compromised and that's the only way they can carry a baby because of course a baby is a totally different human being than the mother carrying it so in essence they're right, a a pregnancy is a natural, the most successful transplant case that we could ever have because that fetus inside the womb is is not of the mother's origin, it's a completely unique human being by mixture and exchange of um, genetic material between the father and the mother. So yes, they're right in a way, but their conclusion is dead wrong in my opinion. In my experience, um, pregnant women are less vulnerable to an infection or a viral pneumonia than a non-pregnant woman. And I think that truth be told, The current literature would bear my opinion out. There's an article that was published by Beth Pennells, actually from my alma mater, a, a fellowship at University of Texas Houston. And Beth Pinnells published an article that was published last year. And she did a very large study showing pretty dramatically that, interestingly, pregnant women had much lower mortality from viral pneumonia than their non-pregnant colleagues. Isn't that interesting? And now there was just another study published in Nature, uh, Journal Nature, and it was published by, I believe the lead author is John MacArthur et al, um, showing very similar that in fact the immunity of the immune system of a mother and fetus are integrally related to each other and dependent upon each other, and that the baby does fine and mother does fine during pregnancy with cellular immunity. Cellular immunity being much more important than humoral immunity, was look at the cell mediated immunity as a right hand of the immune system. Humoral, or the antibody creation by the B cell, the B lymphocyte B cells are the left hand, they're not as important. And it's my opinion that they're not a good marker of immunity whatsoever. And that's everything that the pharmaceutical industry based their tests on. In my opinion, it's a false surrogate. If an antibody is absent, it doesn't tell you anything. If it's present, it really doesn't tell you anything. And the literature has borne that out. So, so I don't believe that the antibody testing that the pharmaceutical companies do are anything better than a charade using a false surrogate to make themselves look good and make large amounts of profit.
1: So at what point were you, did you start seeing some sort of impacts in your patients? In
0: 2021, as the vaccines were rolled out, along about March of that year, I started seeing problems. Uh, it was my observation now I want to be really transparent I want to make it real clear to our audience that I'm not allowed to do clinical research on this topic I'm not in fact doctors have been fired for doing that it's pretty covert closed-mouth operation you know you can't do something that your employers don't allow you to do or your colleagues won't allow you to do but I, I can keep track I you know seeing Seven, eight, thousand, nine thousand 9,000 patients a year, I've got my fingertips on the pulse of obstetrical outcomes. So I saw many more miscarriage. I saw more malformations. I saw more cardiac defects. There was um, much more preeclampsia, uh, preterm labor. I saw many more uh, second trimester abnormalities, abnormal testing results, abnormal appearing placentas um and dead fetuses i saw stillbirths too many
1: and you're saying this was uh, quite different in the year that the vaccine rollout happened versus the first year of covid so you, you could yes. see that it was yes. it wasn't just covid that was happening. That's correct. Okay. I guess i want to ask this you know you were already expecting the vaccine to have some negative outcomes did you ever worry that that might have kind of influenced what you were seeing somehow?
0: It's a great question. Um, that's a very legitimate question. I don't think that it did because I was hoping and praying that I wouldn't see that. Hmm. Um, and of course, the bearish data, I was keeping my fingertips on the pulse of the bearish data. The fetal deaths were up. And then of course, when I saw Pfizer's own internal documents, Mm. um, those got me even more upset. And now keep in mind that, and I'm specifically for your audience, I'm speaking of the Pfizer 5.3.6 post-marketing survey data. Mm. That's the official data of Pfizer. Um, That was 90 days, the first 90 days of the rollout, starting, like I said, they shipped it out December 1st, 2020. They carried out the this study for about 90 days, February 28, 2021. And then nothing was said. Now, about a month later, I got a copy of internal documents. Whistleblower. I saw that data. Yeah, and it was horrible. But there's nothing that I could do about it because w- what am I to do with this? I, I kind of said, okay, this. This is consistent with what I'm seeing, but I can't show this to anybody. It's not, I didn't get it legally. It's not given to me by, formally by the company, Uh, but I studied it. I looked at it very carefully. And Jan, it wasn't until 14 months later that the federal judge, uh, a FOIA request was made for that. Pfizer wanted to hold it up for 75 years, which, you know, I would have been long gone to heaven, dancing with Ignaz Philip Simoes or something, but I, I think that it, it was very, very disturbing because why would they want to block something for 75 years? Doesn't every world citizen deserve to know what that was because by that time there were billions of injections given all over the world? What is this? I mean, why is this not on CNN? Why is it not on Fox News? You know, why is it that we're just talking about this now and nobody else is talking about it? It really upset me because when that came out on April 1st, the first thing I did was I compared it every single page. Even the artifact, copy artifacts were the same on my PDF copy. Every dot, tittle, comma from page zero to page one it was identical copy that I had. And then it was boom. And then I continued to follow that and I would keep following avalanches of data after data after data after drop, showing actually
1: worse outcomes than VARES. Well, so maybe summarize for me you know, what, what you saw in that data that was the most uh, concerning. Okay. For those of us not familiar with it. Okay. So
0: just for our viewers, if you go to uh, a search engine, now you can't use Google, but use DuckDuckGo. Google will block you. We'll we'll never get you. And just type in Pfizer, P-F-I-Z-E-R, 5.3.6. Hit search, and you'll come up with a a website. There's many different sites that it's published on. They're all the same, but the one that's easiest that I find going to is phmpt.org. And that's Public Health and Medical medical uh, Practitioners for Transparency, phmpt.org. Pull that document up, click on it, go to page seven. On page seven, there's table one. In table one, fatal outcomes, 1,223 fatal outcomes. That's less than 90 days, John. I told you. My experience as a medical student, when I was 24, and Wayne State University, just 26 deaths, it's ripped off the market. What was the difference in those 47 years? It's hard to extrapolate and figure out because it was so unprofessionally done. Um, If you go down to page 12 on that same document, it's got the obstetrical outcome, which we talked about. And if you look at that carefully, it's very poorly done, very poorly written uh, on Pfizer's part, horrible. Um, Bad language, uh, I mean, not professional language, not the appropriate language, but their uh, miscarriage rate was uh, uh, north of 75 percent, 80 percent, their miscarriage rate.
1: Their miscarriage rate was 80 Mm percent? Yes. Okay, explain that in another way.
0: In the data that they presented, on page 12, and I've read it and I've studied it for a year, it's very disjointed, it's not well-written, but as of the 270 pregnant women, 238 were not followed up. And of the data that they did present with a miscarriage, of those that they did follow up, it was 80% miscarriage rate. 80%. And I I want to bring it to your attention, Jan, that the federal government, the CDC and the FDA, they're corrupt. They're corrupt. They sat on that data. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. In fact, I didn't really believe what they were saying at Children's Health Defense. It wasn't until 2020 when I really took RFK Jr and Dr. Andy Wakefield, seriously, and I looked at the data that they accumulated in Africa. Jan, it is bloody disturbing. Um, And basically what they did was they covalently bonded the pregnancy hormone, HCG, to the vaccine antigen. They purposefully distributed it throughout the entire continent of Africa to sterilize young, beautiful daughters of our Most High God. That's not an allegation, that's proven. And they proved it with patents, they proved it with publications, and they got caught with their pants down as much as they wanted to deny it. Now, I find it really interesting. I, I've gone back and I've studied all the African doctors. You know, I spent some time in Africa over there, not, not enough, but I really realized that what they did was a purposeful, heinous crime to take the fertility away from one of my patients. I don't care what country they live in, that is not okay with me. And God bless Dr. Andy Wakefield. He's been so persecuted for pointing that out, as has RFK. And, you know, I apologize to them because I didn't really, it took me till 2010 to wake myself up. I was dead wrong. I made a mistake. I did an academic metanoia, if I will. And I apologize to the people that I might have uh, insulted or might have um, made feel bad because I thought the vaccines were indicated. I, I was brainwashed. But I think that it's crucial to understand that what they've done with this vaccine is much of the same with what they did. I know there are different vaccines. It's an mRNA vaccine, it's different. But some of the proteins that are coded for by this man made mRNA code for a molecule that's very similar to the molecule that holds the baby in the womb, syncytin. So, just like the HCG covalently bonded, they spent millions doing that in the lab for the sole purpose when that. Women in Africa got the young girls, getting at 10, 11, 12 years old, getting them repeatedly. When they got those vaccines, their body developed an immune reaction, autoimmune reaction, to the pregnancy hormone, HCG. So when they get pregnant and the HCG levels go up, their antibodies made by the T cells would drive up dramatically, bind to the HCG, neutralize it. Failed pregnancy, dead baby, or no baby. It's very interesting that with this vaccine, and I'm not making any, uh, I I have no idea exactly what is causing the miscarriage um, or what's causing the rampant bleeding in women um, of of, uh, reproductive age who are not pregnant. We don't know that. There's so many things we don't know because nobody will fund it, but that since Sitton like protein that is coded for by the mRNA does the same thing the body makes it in a protein what happens the body's immune system develops an antibody and then that antibody goes to the womb and makes a hostile environment so if there is fertilization that occurs it's miscarried or if the pregnancy does continue and there's not enough
1: antibody you know the pregnancy will go on for a time such that it's lost. I wanna to jump to your paper because I think you have made some really, you did some really, really valuable work here. Thank you, Jan. Um, and so again, COVID-19 vaccines, the impact on pregnancy outcomes and menstrual function. So can you summarize to me? I mean, of course you're you're one of a number of researchers that worked on this.
0: And I was gonna point that out to you, it wasn't yeah. me. It was really, uh, there's seven of us and um, the least of which is me. Okay, um, so we have Miss Claire Rogers. Um, I'm her wingman, I like to say. And then we have Doctor. Um, we, we have uh, let's see, Michael Deskovich, Ph.D., who's a um, brilliant Ph.D. mathematical modeling expert. We have Stuart Tankersley, who's an incredible colleague and whistleblower, military whistleblower. He's a physician uh, and a friend. Um, and then we, we also have Megan Redshaw, who is an attorney and she's lead counsel with uh, RFK's group, uh, Children's Health Defense, and, and also with Trial Site News, uh, brilliant attorney, brilliant writer. Um, and, and we also have uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who I know that uh, everybody knows. And we. I, I also have Albert Benavides. Albert Benavides is the expert in the world on VARES. and he travels all over the world. He's developed dashboards. He's not a physician. He's been in the medical billing profession. He's sharp.
1: So maybe you can summarize for me what
0: you found. To set the stage, I wanted to compare the the vaccine influenza since we started using that in 1998 um, in pregnancy, and then compare it to the outcomes of the COVID-19 vaccines that have been used. So understand we're looking at about 288 months for the uh, of usage for the vaccine, influenza vaccine in pregnancy, only about, uh, we've got about, um, you know, say 18 months or so of the data from the COVID-19 vaccine and pregnancy. So what I did was I simply uh, interrogated the VARES database and I looked for pregnancy complications that I've seen. In my experience, um, mostly I looked for things that were highly related to Inflammatory nature. It's been known in my field for 50 years that anything that causes inflammation in pregnancy is deathly and dangerous and um, injuring to the developing embryo and fetus. So I looked at all of those causes. I picked out first before pregnancy the miscarriage, uh, the uh, abnormal menstruation, explosion of abnormal menstruation in women of reproductive age to the tune of 1,200 fold. I'm not talking about 12,000 or uh, 1,200 uh, percent. I'm talking about 120,000 percent. 1,200 percent increase in abnormal menstruation. Something's going on there. And then we also noted a substantial increase in miscarriage. Now this is comparing the COVID-19 vaccine to the influenza vaccine, same database. I saw a substantial increase in cystic hygroma, which is an abnormality in the developing fetus embryo, long about 10, 12, 14 weeks, where there's an abnormal development of the lymphatic system and the lymphatic channels that drain into the venous system. Um, Saw a dramatic increase in cardiac arrhythmia, irregular heartbeat in the fetal heart. Saw a dramatic increase in fetal cardiac abnormalities and malformations. Saw a substantial increase in fetal cardiac arrest, absent fetal heart. Saw a substantial increase in Uh, abnormal placentas, Uh, the placenta doesn't serve the baby well, dramatic reduction in birth weights, um, what we call intrauterine growth restriction, a dramatic increase in preterm labor, saw a dramatic increase in abnormal uh, blood flow to certain various organs in the fetus, and we look at um, sophisticated Doppler velocimetry, measuring the blood flow velocity in certain blood vessels in the umbilical artery and in the ductus venosus and in the umbilical vein sometimes and in the ductus arteriosus, the middle cerebral artery, all doing surveillance. Um, The non-stress test where we would monitor the fetus for 30 minutes with a continuous heart rate monitor. So those testings were dramatically abnormal.
1: And then of course, um, stillbirth. It's hard to fathom what studies need to be done to confirm all of this that this is this is actually a cause of the this is actually caused by the vaccines
0: it's hard to undo it because i believe probably purposefully they've lost a follow up and they've crossed over they did a crossover so some of the patients in their phase 1 phase 2 and phase 3 that got the placebo were crossed over so we'll never have that data It was permanently, permanently. So explain
1: what that means.
0: So uh, the part of doing a randomized controlled prospective trial, you have pristine, you don't have bias. So you're randomizing a patient to either getting the real treatment, the vaccine, the vaccines, or getting a placebo, which is fake. Um, And when you do that, you eliminate bias if it's done appropriately mm-hmm. and if you include a large enough number so what they did was they never they and i believe purposefully they're not dumb they wanted this to be concealed so they never kept a pristine placebo group mm-hmm. they ended up crossing it over and treating those patients that got the placebo group mm-hmm. with vaccine real vaccine
1: and i think they they said that they did it because you know for humanitarian reasons right
0: yeah for humanitarian reasons to uh, get their $80 million, $80 billion profit margin. You know, people will want to discredit VAERS data, which is a governmental database saying, oh, it's passed, and oh, it doesn't prove causation. No pharmacovigilant tool's ever proven. It wasn't proven back in 1976. That's not the function of a pharmacovigilant tool. The function is to pick up safety signals. The safety signals that the CDC recommended that needed to be acted on is an odds ratio of two. Listen, our odds ratios are so far off the graph that I had to make the x-axis logarithmic. So instead of going one, two, three, four, I had to go one, ten, one hundred, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand. Otherwise, if it were on a linear X line, a linear graph, this, the data point would be a mile out to the right hand of my screen, it wouldn't be visible. And if you look at the yellow card, the UK yellow card, same thing, it's worse than bears. The European Union, the European Medicines Agency database, Eudra Vigilance, it's worse than bears the W World Health Organization, uh, uh, Vigi Access, what they call it, it's worse than bears. Here's what I found just six weeks ago, which just floored me, the official UK government, for two years, put language at the bottom, very concealed, it's very hard to find, I can't believe I missed it. They specifically recommend that the vaccines not be used in pregnancy. COVID 19 vaccines are not to be used in pregnancy and not to be used in breastfeeding, specifically on their website right now as we speak. As a very intelligent move for the UK government, because the governments all over the world now are waking up. And many of them, who do you think they're blaming, Jan? They're pointing their fingers at the physicians. And rightfully so because it's not the bureaucrats or the politicians or the board that have a physician patient relationship that they have to honor. Where does the rubber meet the road? The rubber meets the road where a physician does his or her own due diligence and they counsel their patients. So the UK data it's always been there, they've always put it in there, but they have plausible deniability, you see. So when the governments, like say in the United States, they haven't made, they don't have that hidden anywhere that I can find it. The U.S. government doesn't have that excuse, but the U.K. government does. They have plausible deniability. I have assembled, you know, large numbers, like 30, north of 30 independent verifiable sources showing that the various data that we have in our study is absolute accurate, except it may be underestimated the adverse effect because it's being throttled.
1: And what does throttle mean again?
0: Throttling is like a governor, you know, on an engine, you know. So, you know, if you have a Corvette or whatever and, you know, you're sitting there um, and you try to take the RPMs up, it'll, it'll keep it suppressed so it won't hurt the engine. Same thing is what the FDA, uh, CDC have done, and and, uh, Albert Benavides has convinced me, I've spent hours with him going through, I mean, just unbelievable, unbelievable data, clearly showing that they've hidden, they've taken uh, deaths out, they will miss, um, they will take data out from the, for example, the age. If the age is taken out and there's a, a death from the vaccine, it doesn't get counted. Oh,
1: that's right, you can't correct, because yeah. you need all the data so, points.
0: So what, what, doc, uh, what Albert Benavides has done was he's gone back, and the age was in there in, in other areas of the report. Hmm. So he just put it in there, and that's gonna be our next
1: paper. I um, see, so you're basically de-throttling
0: Well, we didn't do it for this study because I wanted virgin data. Mm -hmm. This is straight data from VARES. Our next study after this uh, uh, we're going to start working on is we're going to use uh, de-throttled data. Now, we can't de-throttle at all
1: because they've done a lot of sneaky things, but he can de-throttle a lot of it.
0: Um,
1: Just from pulling from different uh, parts of the database. That's right. Right. Pulling from, that's absolutely right. And you mentioned um, breast milk, right? I think this was in the, the UK information. Um, so there, is, there have been reports of this mRNA uh, appearing in breast milk, from what I recall. There's two
0: reports that I'm aware of, two reports, one published this year and one published last year. And what they're finding is that there is intact... I call it PU mRNA. that P-U is pseudo-urinated M-R-N-A intact in the breast milk. And I have to tell a little story of why that's so deeply disturbing to me. First, understand, that the first lie that we were told was that the vaccine stays in the arm. That, that, that was nonsense, they knew that. The vaccine doesn't stay in the arm, it's in the bloodstream within hours, and it breaks every God-made barrier to protect the human being from dangerous substances. Now, in order for it to go from here, it's in a lipid nanoparticle, then it goes into a cell, pick any cell in the body. But here's the bizarre thing, and what's really scary to me about this study, is that the mRNA is reprocessed within the cytoplasm of the cell, and it's made into another lipid package so we we it's a bipinocytosis, pinocytosis um, a fat layer kind of the like the lipid nanoparticle except it's not that it's it's a natural fatty lay, layer like a lysosomal membrane or exosome it covers the mRNA it protects it and then on, by pinocytosis it's transported out the cell then it goes to the mammary gland and then the reverse process occurs it gets intact into the Exocrine cell of the milk duct uh, Gland that's making it and that's excreted intact so so think about that this mRNA PU mRNA Is being sent to every possibly every exocrine gland in the body your sweat glands your salivary glands Nasal secretions, eye drops, maybe, you know, vaginal secretions, cervical secretions, semen. It could be in all of those. Normal mRNA only lasts about 20 minutes, half-life of 20 minutes in our blood because it's immediately taken out by the um, metabolic enzyme machinery. Not so with DNA. DNA is very stable. We can; It stays in the blood for a long time. In fact, we use um, fetal DNA that, that is uh, excreted in mom's blood to do genetics on a fetus. We've been doing that for 15, 20 years now. DNA is very easy. It's very stable. RNA is not. But pseudo man-made RNA lasts a long time. And that's scary. So is it coming out in our sweat, in our spit, in our breath, in our saliva, in our semen, in our cervical secretions? We don't know. This is all stuff that was incumbent upon the government and the pharmaceutical companies to study before it was ruled out. This is an event that could potentially severely adversely affect generations to come. I'm not saying that's what's happening. What I'm saying is it's possible. We now have two studies, very clearly two studies, the study by Aiden and colleagues earlier this year and the study from Zhang and colleagues last year that clearly show that the mRNA, the pseudouridinated mRNA, is reverse transcribed that means it's an enzyme, reverse transcriptase, takes it from mRNA to DNA and gets incorporated into the DNA genome, possibly permanently.
1: Now, I think those were in vitro, right? Studies. Those were in vitro. Right. Very so good it's, DNA. again, something else that needs to right. be studied in vivo like in the body.
0: You're spot on. That's correct. So,
1: So, I mean, what kinds of studies you know would typically be done to understand the impact of pregnant women both short-term and long-term
0: that's a brilliant question uh, thank you for asking that um, as we speak uh, i'm i'm working with dr ryan cole and we have a team we've assembled a team uh, of folks um, one from europe uh, aga wilson and tiffany parato from She's from Florida here, and also Brooke Jackson and myself, and we've designed um, some studies to move forward and to gain more understanding of what's um, in the placenta and also what's in the endometrium of these women that are causing severe adverse menstrual dysregularities. Understand that your question is so good and nobody's funding it, so we have to fund ourselves and we're moving forward with ourselves as best we can study this for for our patients to give some hope. How do we treat these things? We don't know how to treat them until we know what the exact cause. Um, We do believe, I do believe that, you know, the vaccine uh, damage and injury and death is mediated by multiple different mechanisms, um, including inflammation, at least in the fetus. Um, what we and, and I think that the the study by Palmer and Botke pretty much showed that that spike protein um, vasculopathy or endothelitis is what's killing the people that get the vaccine that die. They've shown that pretty conclusively. I I think the same thing. Can you just uh, see that in Lehman's terms? So, Doctor. Palmer and Dr. Bodke, two brilliant um, investigators. So the spike protein, which is made by the uh, pseudo-uridinated mRNA, is stealing all the energy from the usual household energy requirements of the molecules in the cells. And it's stealing that energy, diverting it to creation of spike protein. The spike protein is severely damaging to the lining of cells, causes severe inflammation necrosis and damage. I think you just probably saw that recent article this past week where there's vaccine injury due to severe damaging um, of the brain tissue.
1: What does it typically look like for a product or a drug or a vaccine to be, um, I guess, tested for use in pregnant women? What does that typically look like?
0: You're a great questioner because that's a topic we should visit. Before you ever introduce any drug in pregnancy, you have to do a couple of things. Everybody knows you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse or a mechanical engineer or have any education. Realize that you don't ever use a foreign substance in pregnancy. You don't ever do that. I mean, we've been burned very badly: thalidomide, diethylstilbestrol, the Dalcon Shield. My, my. Uh, um, Obstetrics, my area of specialty, we have a very dark history of catastrophic iatrogenic problems that we've caused. What they're supposed to do is reproductive toxicology studies, phase one, phase two, and phase three, before anything is ever given to a pregnant woman. There's a brilliant researcher by the name of Whistleblower. Her name is Alexandra Latipova. She goes by Sasha. Uh, She and I have talked at great length. I've interviewed her. Um, She worked for the pharmaceutical industry. She has internal documents that broke on your outlet. Uh, I think Mr. Enrico Tregosa broke that, or one of your colleagues. Maybe it wasn't Enrico. And basically, they fraudulently deleted horrible outcomes of the vaccine in the reproductive toxicology studies fact Sasha Latapova has it and it was buried and never published now you talk about you know censoring us physicians and being responsible for having blood on your hands and killing i don't know 500,000 Americans because they didn't get appropriate therapy that we knew we could have saved their lives with and we're not allowed to do that by our government and by the bureaucracy of the American boards okay this is just as bad or worse because they're still pushing the vaccine in pregnancy to this very day. That is unconscionable. There's been so much academic fraud, I mean, f- from the New England Journal of Medicine and the editor in chief, from the fraudulent articles that they've put out pushing this disastrous drug in pregnancy. Fraudulent articles. Um, demonizing hydroxychloroquine when it could have saved five hundred thousand people, same thing with ivermectin. This is a concerted effort to taint and compromise and monetize every sector of our society to push the vaccine. They knew who what they call the low-hanging fruit. You know the COVID uh Coalition Corps, CCC, Department of Health and Human Services, put out not tens of millions, not hundreds of millions, not billions, tens of billions of dollars to manipulate every single sector of our society, all the medical boards, all of the media, the legacy media, the mainstream media, All of the IT companies were in on this. There's internal communications leaking. Twitter, um, Facebook, um, all of them ganged up and pushed the vaccine. They used rock stars. They used athletes. They gave money to churches. They bribed physicians. They're collecting their paychecks as a passive bribe to continue to collect their money, and they continue injuring patients if they're pushing the vaccines, and they should know better. You know, being told to do that or being uh, threatened to get fired, that's not an excuse to not to disgrace your, your uh, Hippocratic oath. You, you don't ever break that. That's sacrosanct. You don't do that. You die before you do
1: that. Um, you have some very strong thoughts on COVID treatment, on the costs, on the harms, on studies that weren't done. Have you encountered any, you know, reprisals for your yeah. efforts?
0: A lot. I'm threatened by the American Board of OBGYN. Um, you know, I love my employer. My my employer has been the um, best employer I've ever worked with. I, I don't want to mention their name, but I think know that I'm right.
1: So you're describing this uh, study that you're organizing um, with a number of other doctors and you know, there isn't any funding available Um, and I I guess the question is, you know, how often does this sort of thing happen?
0: Um, I've never seen it happen before. Now, I've funded myself from private donors in my 40-year career. Um, But there's never been a situation like this where there's been an emergency and a problem where there's literally no funding available. It's unprecedented. I go back to Edward Dowd's uh, data, you know, the BlackRock uh, numbers guy, Wall Street analyst for BlackRock Futures. Well, there was a 40% increase in all-cause mortality. A 10% increase would be a one in 200 year black swan event, three sigma event. We call that a three sigma event. Sigma equating to a standard deviation in statistics. Three standard deviations is very, very high. It's one in 200 year. This is 40%. That's a 12 sigma event. That's a one in 800 or 1,000
1: year event. Um, You're here at the FLCCC conference. I know you've encountered all sorts of people who are working on related issues that you haven't come across before. So, how important to this whole effort is this new community that's developed around, um, you know, I guess both funding and treating? and assessing um, all these, uh, you know, vaccine-harm-related issues.
0: Oh, you, you have no idea how, how much it means to me. And, you know, even all my co-authors, you know, I, I've never met them before. Dr. Claire um, Rogers, uh, she's she's a physician's assistant, so I call her doctor because she's an independent practitioner. I, I never knew her. I, I never knew anybody in... in Tiffany Parado's group, The My Cycle Story. But I've been so deep in this battle with them that I feel like they're my brothers and sisters. It's not just people in the United States, it's people that I've networked down in New Zealand, down in Australia, where I've done cases, you know, in Scandinavia, in Vienna, um, in Philippines. I've been I mean, it's these people we have a bonded relationship in truth and I don't think a true relationship can be flourish if it's not founded on truth. That's the silver lining. It's brought so many friends that I've never met before that I love because they're part of my family and this is what FLCC is for me. I love Dr. Corey. I I respect him so much for what he's done. Um, Dr. Merrick, um, all of these doctors, Zev Zetlenko, I never had the opportunity to meet him, Peter McCullough, I mean, you know, just Richard Urso, um, Ryan Cole, um, these are heroes, these are people that are standing up and losing a lot and getting persecuted to save their patients and to stand for truth, and I stand with them.
1: Well, Dr. James Thorpe, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: It's such a pleasure to meet you. Yeah.
1: Thank you all for joining Dr. James Thorpe and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.
0: Mm-hmm.